If you're ever interested in going down a rabbit hole um, on social media sometime, not now because you're in church and that would be bad, but sometime if you're interested in doing that, and you're a Twitter user, I would encourage you to do a search of the hashtag blessed. You'll be endlessly entertained. I did that several weeks ago, frankly at a time when I probably should have been doing something far more productive than that, but it did give me a sermon illustration, so here we go. Um, I, I, I want to read to you some of the things I found. So first of all, a picture of a bird, and then the tweet below it, I was over the moon to see this great spotted woodpecker. What a beauty, hashtag blessed. It's a bird. All right? Picture of a new Tesla. Uh, oh, yes, we got testimony there. Picture of a new Tesla. And then the tweet below it says, when you tell your hubby your dreams, hashtag blessed. All right, this one is more my speed, mainly because I wake up and neither of these things are ever true. Woke up having a good hair day and my favorite shirt is clean, hashtag blessed. I thought that worked. Then my favorite, David, this will be for you, just one bowling, hashtag blessed. How about that? Yeah, all of those things, uh, again, if you choose to waste your time in that way, range from the ridiculous to the sublime, but they all have uh, kind of some basic characteristics. There is a picture or a statement of a favorable circumstance, and then the testimony that they believe that that favorable circumstance means that they are blessed. It really gives you a window into our country's soul on, on what, what really they consider to be living the blessed life. And if it is a favorable circumstance, I'd have to say that, that I'm blessed. I have my health, more or less, for, you know, where I am at life right now. I have my health. I have a great wife. I have great kids. I have great kids-in-law. I have the world's greatest granddaughter. In October, I will have the world's greatest grandson. So, you know, all of that. Everybody's going, what? Yeah, if you're on Instagram, you'd know these kinds of things. That's really good. I mean, I've got you all. You're a great church uh, to be able to shepherd and, and to lead. Um, you know, I mean, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm just blessed. But what if all of that were taken away? in a Jobian trial of some kind, where all I had left was sackcloth, ashes, a mean wife, and three sorry friends, would I then be blessed? Well, according to Peter, in what we are about to look at, absolutely, extraordinarily, unbelievably blessed, if you have Jesus. Now, I want us to think about where we were last week. Last week, in verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1, we saw Peter do what biblical writers do. He just got so excited about a concept, in this case, salvation in Jesus Christ, that he just began to dump on the concept everything that he had in his vocabulary. He's just throwing words at the greatness of of this thing that is called salvation. He, he, he reaches this kind of crescendo conclusion where what we have in Jesus is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. I mean, it, it would be hard for Peter 
to come to any greater conclusion about salvation than the conclusion that he reaches in verses 3 through 9. But as, as verse 10 opens, he essentially says, here's the deal. My, my family, my kids, um, roll their eyes anytime I'm waxing eloquent at home, and it happens a lot. And I come to the point where I say the phrase, and here's the deal. Because they will say, all dad is about to say is something, is some profound insight that the rest of us already know anyway. But here's the deal. If they did already know it, I wouldn't have to say, here's the deal. And so Peter here is saying, man, the salvation is unbelievable in verses 3 through 9. And everybody's thinking, we know, we know. And he says, no, you don't. Here's the deal. And so in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, concerning the salvation, here's the deal. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, folks, he's, he is... He is really on the top of his toes talking about salvation here. Let's make sure we can see everything. That phrase, the prophets who prophesied. Who's he referring to? Well, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets. He's referring to, to men like, like Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He says these Old Testament prophets prophesied about what? The grace that was to be yours. Now, grace, as we've already seen frequently in our lives, just means kind of a favorable set of circumstances. And, and in Scripture, it means being, in a very specific way, favored by God. But here, it's a virtual synonym for salvation. So make sure we're tracking with everything here. He says the Old Testament prophets, all those names that you learned in Bible school or Awana, those prophets prophesied about the grace, about salvation concerning you. In other words, he is saying that the thrust of the Old Testament, which Christians tend to minimize, is ultimately about Jesus fulfilling the purposes of God and making a people that you are as the church. We see this in Scripture. The, the morning of Christ's resurrection, he shields his identity from two of his followers walking along the road to a town called Emmaus, and they are, they are heartbroken and concerned over everything that has transpired and so Jesus comes alongside them, again, shielding his identity. He says, what are you talking about? They tell him, and then Luke tells us in Luke 24 that Jesus proceeds to show them about himself using the scriptures of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not something to be blasted through till you can get to the good stuff. It ultimately is, is painting the story all the way back really to the garden up to Jesus and culminating in you. These prophets who prophesied were prophesying. The Old Testament was being written, inspired about the salvation that is yours, the grace that is yours. And then bear in mind who he is 
writing to. These people were Gentiles who had come to Christ outside of the Jewish faith. The religious stratification of the day would lead a Gentile to conclude in a Jew's eyes like Peter that they were second-class citizens. But he's saying, far from it. You have been given grace. You have been given the salvation. And what's more, connect the dots here, the salvation that you have been given as a Gentile is part of the narrative trajectory of the Old Testament, not even your scriptures that you grew up with. So he's, he's painting a picture of the awesomeness of salvation. And then he says these prophets who prophesied did what? They searched and inquired carefully. A thoroughly engrossing search of some kind. Think of it this way. If you're as bad at golf as I am, you're going to lose a ball or two or 12. And those suckers are expensive. And so I'm not one of these guys, if I lose a ball, that does a 70-mile-an-hour drive-by in a golf cart and says, well, I can't find it. No, I'm going to go to the place where I last saw it, and then I'm going to institute a search pattern in that grass. I'm going to walk back and forth, back and forth, searching every square inch of where I lost my ball in the hopes that I can find my ball. The prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament about the salvation, that is, by the way, yours as Gentiles, thoroughly searched every square inch of the Old Testament for what? They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What are they looking for? He says, to just kind of condense it a little bit, the person or time of the Christ. Now, they weren't engaging in some kind of parlor game like you and I can engage in as evangelicals when we try to guess the identity of the Antichrist using the latest political boogeyman as our likely target. They weren't trying to guess who the Christ would be. Here's what they were doing, and this is wonderful. They were thoroughly searching the Old Testament in the hopes that maybe they were living in the time of the Messiah. In the hopes that they would be able to witness with their own eyes the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Desperate to know if it was their time. How did they do that? Well, they did that by the, the Spirit of Christ in them. What does that mean? Well, I think it's seven times. I can't remember precisely, but I think seven times in the New Testament the phrase, the Spirit of Christ, is used as a synonym for the Holy Spirit. It's just a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in them, was the one, again, who's driving the narrative trajectory of the Old Testament, who is, who is painting a picture, leaving clues of himself, pointing forward to his work as the Messiah, who was actually inspiring the, the, the prophets. And, and then the thing that they were looking at specifically was the predictions of the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories, meaning what? 
meaning that the Old Testament contains the predictions that were fulfilled of the atoning sacrifice of Christ and His resurrection. Paul, in, in a letter to the Corinthian church, says that when I came to you, in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you the matter that was of first importance. And what did he say was of first importance? That Christ died, and then he says this, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again, and then he uses the phrase again, according to to the scriptures. The only scriptures they had at that moment was the Old Testament, meaning that the atoning sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection were predicted in the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament was ultimately pointing toward. And so to stand back from all of this, you get a, a kind of a sweeping understanding of just how amazing Peter is saying that the salvation that his readers have and that every single one of us have who have given our lives to Christ is, is, is beyond almost description. And he, he leads us to two worshipful conclusions. Conclusion number one, followers of Jesus are more blessed than the prophets. Followers of Jesus are more blessed than the prophets. Now, if you're a note taker, you wrote that down and you're saying, okay, good, I, that's cool. What's next? No, we're not moving yet. I want to make sure you understand the power of what Peter has just shown us. Think of someone like Moses. Have you ever thought about how cool it would be to have been Moses? Not you know, leading a bunch of knuckleheads who wouldn't pay attention for 40 years. That's not what I'm talking about. But being the person who saw the presence of God manifest in a, in a burning bush, but the bush not being consumed. Being the one who, at the command of God, stretched out his staff over the sea, and the sea parts so that the people of God could walk through it on dry land and be delivered from their enemies. To spend 40 days and 40 nights on a mountain on fire with the presence of God. To have alone time with God. One of the things that we sometimes just blow right through when we're reading Exodus, because we're just trying again to get to the New Testament, is this wonderful scene where Moses and the elders of Israel go up on the mountain and have a meal with God. His presence is there while they eat. Getting I had Moses had dinner with God. He, he could speak to God. The Old Testament tells us. As a man speaks to a friend, Peter says, You're more blessed than him. He wanted, he searched, he hoped that he would be alive to experience what you have experienced. Think of Elijah, who is, though he doesn't have a book of his prophecies, he is the star of the show in some of the historical books. A man who was alive with the presence and the power of God, who was able to 
perform powerful miracles, to see the dead raised to life, was carried to heaven on a chariot of fire. He had a protege named Elisha. Elisha, his one wish was that he would just have a double portion of the blessing from God that Elijah had. Elijah says, if you see me taken up, you'll get it. Well, Elisha saw the chariot of fire. And if you chart these things in the Old Testament, you'll see that Elisha does exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah does. He got that blessing. And both of those great men would look at what you have in salvation in Christ and be envious. Followers of Jesus are more blessed than the prophets. Here's the second worshipful conclusion that we are to reach from these three verses. Followers of Jesus are more blessed than the angels. And again, we're not going to say, well, that's cool, and blow through it. We're going to linger over this for just a second. I want you to think about what angels have right now. What do they have? Well, they have the experience of being in the very presence of God. When we see angels appear in the Bible, many times they say, I've come from the presence of God to speak to you. They are able to to see face to face the person of God, the Godhead three in one, they are able to witness that firsthand. They are able to see what you and I can't see in the spiritual battle, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, that is waged around us. I mean, angels have a cool gig. They have that right now. We don't. We will. If we take seriously the book of Revelation, which we just labored through, For several months, we know that our experience for eternity will be what the angels are experiencing now, plus something they will never have. Angels are sinless creatures. You and I are not. And an angel will never know what it's like to be redeemed by God. They do not have an inkling of what it means to be rescued from sin. And so right now in the heavenly places, angels are peering in on us. And they are saying, what must it be like to be loved by God like that? Followers of Jesus are more blessed than the very angels of heaven. So what do we do with this knowledge that we're more blessed than than the prophets and we're more blessed than the angels? What do we do? Well, we've all seen spoiled children, haven't we? I mean, we've seen kids that we would just say, what a spoiled child. And frequently what we say is that, well, they're spoiled because they've been given too much. But I'm not certain that's the best indicator of what it means to be spoiled. I really am not. I mean, I feel like Julie and I, both tangibly and intangibly, gave our kids when they were growing up a lot. I never felt like they were spoiled. 
to my knowledge, others didn't feel like they were spoiled. Why? Because I never really ever saw my kids take what their mom and I were providing them for granted. They understood that they had a lot and, and they were blessed in that sense. So what do you do to try to help a, a spoiled child overcome their, their spoiledness? Well, well first, you have to get them to the point where they understand how much they've been given. And I think that maybe a good deal of us have forgotten how much we've been given in Christ. Take for granted just how blessed we are. One of my very best friends in college was a guy named Alan Fortenberry. He's a dentist in Oklahoma now. Um, and, and we were having a, a conversation after college, actually, about our faith journeys and about just being a Christian in our particular context. And I, I you know, folks, I just, I'm like a poster child for a Baptist kid. You know, I went to VBS. I'm old enough. VBS was two weeks. How do you find volunteers for that? I don't know. VBS was two weeks. So I went to VBS for for two weeks, I, I went to revival services, which were two weeks long. I mean, we'd go to church every night for 14 nights to, to hear preaching. I, I did all of that kind of stuff. In one of those, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I immediately was connected with a youth minister who invested in me, with a pastor who invested in me. I realized a call to ministry when I was 16 years old. I went to a Baptist college. I went to seminary. I mean, I'm I'm a Baptist poster kid. Alan came to Christ one night after he got hammered drunk. He was 16 years old. He had been out with his friends, knocking them back. They all left. And he was left there in southwestern Oklahoma sitting on the tailgate of a truck because there's always got to be a truck in Oklahoma. <laughs> And through the haze of his inebriation, he, he said, I looked up into the stars and I thought, there has got to be more to life than this. And then he looked me in the eye and he said something I have never forgotten. He said, Derek, the biggest difference between you and me is that I remember what it was like to be lost. Baptist poster kid Derek didn't really remember that. Even though both of us were, the root of the word salvation means to be rescued. I was rescued when I gave my life to Jesus Christ from hell and sin and damnation. How dare I ever, ever take that for granted? So you have to understand to, to move past the tendency to be spoiled spiritually where it was that you were rescued from. That's the first thing. But the second thing you need to learn to do if you're a spoiled kid and a spoiled Christian is share. You have to learn to share. You have to learn to share this message 
of salvation that pulled you from sin and hell with the people around you who need to be rescued from the same thing. And it's really easy to say, well, I just don't know anybody like that. That's part of the problem. That is part of the problem of being spoiled. We just want to all get together. We want to huddle up and we just want to enjoy other Christians and fellowship with other Christians. When all around you, neighbors, co-workers, people at school, are blissfully unaware, dangerously unaware of the peril that they are in. And the person who's got everything won't share. If you and I are not strategically building relationships, connecting at the personal, loving level with people outside of our faith, you're spoiled. And if you have never shared with someone else how to come to faith in Jesus, to find Jesus like you found Jesus, you're a spoiled brat. See, it's easy to just amen. Man, that's good. That's great. I'm more blessed than a prophet. I'm more blessed than an angel. And then just go off and hoard your blessing. But what we are challenged to do by this text with those around us who don't know and have the blessing like you and I have, what we are called to do is to stop taking it for granted and start sharing with others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.